Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is September the 27th. Um, Besides the fact that we're recording uh, twice in two days, we've got a a real special treat for our listeners this week. Uh, We do. Look at us. We're both just grinning year to year. We're so excited for this one. So we have been super fortunate to have a lot of great guests over the course of this podcast that we've been doing for a little while now, but I'm not sure that we have been more excited or more grateful to have the guests that we're having on tonight. So we're having Steve uh, Kornacki from uh, NBC Politics, NBC News. Um, you probably have seen him running along the maps on election night, election week, election month over the over the past few years, and he has graciously offered to spend some time with us tonight. We are now exactly six weeks out from the midterm elections and Steve's going to break down he's going to talk to us about some general trends that he is seeing and then get into some more specific races in the senate and then make maybe a prediction or two about what he thinks is going to happen on election night in six weeks yeah um I think yeah Brendan will of course give him a little bit of an introduction when he hops on but I always think of him as the uh the master at the telestrator nobody Nobody runs that like he does. Right. He's like, you know, like when John Madden like pioneered that on on like football, like on, for me, it was Fox. I know he was at somewhere before Fox where he would do all these things. And it was like, oh, my goodness, this is like unprecedented level of analysis. That's like Steve, like politically. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so before we're going to get right into that interview, but before we do, just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Remember, that's Cannon with two N's, Ricky. And Ricky, this this podcast is going to be all about analyzing Democrats versus Republicans and who's going to win. But I think one thing that we can all agree on is that supporting local hardworking uh, craftsmen who are making real high end quality products is a good thing. No argument here. All right. So if you're if you're looking for some, for a piece of furniture or anything like that, check out Cannon Hill Wood and, and let them know we sent you. But without further ado, let's get in and, and talk to Steve. All right. So we are now thrilled to welcome Steve Kornacki to the show. Uh, Steve is someone who grew up in Massachusetts, like Ricky and I, grew up in Groton, Mass, was a Boston University graduate. He then went on to uh, begin his journalism career as a reporter for politicsnj.com back in 2002 to 2006. He's also the former politics editor at Salon. He's had articles published in a bunch of different places, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Boston Globe. From 2012 to 2014, he hosted a couple of shows on MSNBC, including The Cycle and Up. And since 2014, he has been MSNBC's election coverage map correspondent. On May 8th, 2017, he was named the national political correspondent for NBC News Group. And that's probably, if you do know Steve, that's probably 
when you first came to know him, uh, unless you are a true political junkie. Uh, back in 2018, he also published a book titled The Red and the Blue, The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism, which I didn't know until I was like looking more into your background. So now I'm interested in that. And finally, if you are not necessarily a politics person, but you are still listening to this podcast, which we appreciate, you might recognize Steve from Football Night in America, where NBC brought him on back in 2020 to start doing like playoff scenarios, or even uh, if you're into horse racing, he also handicaps the Kentucky Derby now. Uh, so big introduction. We are we are thrilled to have Steve. And Steve, thanks so much for taking a few minutes tonight to, to talk to us about the midterms. Uh, happy to do it, Brendan. Good to be with you, uh, you and Ricky, and uh, looking forward to this. Thank yeah. You. The the voice that kind of narrates my election nights, um, getting to talk to the man in the flesh, it's pretty surreal. I'm excited for this one. Yeah, I think I, I, I omitted like the most notable thing in your bio, which was in 2020, people named you one of the sexiest men alive. So... Yeah, my uh, my my line on that is that's where the real vote fraud was in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, needless to say, Ricky and I have not had anybody else on the podcast who was named the sexiest man alive. So uh, for first one. Uh, so I, I actually do want to start with just I gave an overview of your career. But so I want to talk about that a little bit. It feels a little bit like you kind of burst onto the scene a few years ago and we're all of a sudden this like very famous figure. Did it feel that way to you or did you feel like this was just like a culmination of work you had been doing for 10, 15 years. And just now people were starting to recognize that all of a sudden. Yeah, I guess it was much more like I, I it didn't, um, the stuff that happened in 2020 kind of, um, I, I guess what was weird. I mean, it was, it, it was weird to me in a lot of ways, but um, it, the fact that it happened kind of in the middle of the pandemic too, um, probably uh, insulated me from a lot of the, the things that might've otherwise kind of happened or I might've otherwise noticed because, yeah, it was all kind of like a virtual, you know, thing. Um, there weren't too many people like, kind of like I'd, I'd walk home from the office, you know, and uh, there weren't too many people out in the streets. You weren't going out to restaurants much or bars or anything. So it wasn't like I was, I was you know, out there rubbing shoulders with people and, and, and getting any sense that, that anything had changed kind of. Um, so it was more kind of like an online thing, I guess. Um, and it was, it was even that week, that election week, when, when it kind of happened, I didn't really, it was such a, a bizarre long week. And I was just so kind of consumed with the election itself. I, I didn't really, it was more afterwards. People were telling me, go take a look at this, go take a look at that. And, and I, I was a little baffled by the whole thing, but, uh, been a couple of years now. And I think things have kind of gotten back to normal. So, uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience though. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. But now it, it does feel like in some ways you've become the guy, like the map guy. People might not even know your name, but it feels like <laughs> who you are. Yeah, well, I hope we got an election coming up in uh, about five, six weeks here. So I, 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 I hope that means people will think to tune into us um, and, and you know, watch on. I tell folks now it's, you know, it used to be not that long ago, election night, and it would be over by midnight or so. It's it's going to be at least, I think, an election week this year, and it could easily be an election month. So I, I, I hope folks will uh, will check us out. Absolutely. So let, let's get into that. Uh, so six months ago or even three months ago, it seemed like a red wave was a foregone conclusion. That no longer seems like the case. So what are you seeing as some of the major trends or causes for this reversal of fortune that seems to have occurred over the summer? 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of zero in on two things, um, you know, and I think everybody kind of talks about them. Certainly the abortion decision from the Supreme Court, I, you know, I do think it had an impact. I think the impact um, has been in in motivating kind of Democratic voters, folks who are already probably um, aligned with Democrats, but getting them really plugged into the election. I think there had been we'd been showing this in our in our own polling early this year. Um, we'd been seeing a pretty sizable gap in terms of enthusiasm among Republican voters and Democratic voters. You don't see that in our polling anymore. And I think the other thing is just it's you know, it's, it's not that Donald Trump went away, um, but I do think he had receded a bit from kind of the headlines and and kind of from the, the, the center of the political stage. And I think this summer he kind of reemerged in the center of the political stage um, because, A, uh, a lot of his candidates were winning some of these really big Republican primaries, and they were winning it, you know, talking about these themes that, that he talks about when it comes to 2020. So it brought not just Trump back, but it brought all those issues around 2020 back. And then obviously the, the you know, the FBI going into Mar-a-Lago, um, the, the, the saga that that kind of kicked off and, and we're still kind of uh, living through right now. I, I think both of those things really brought Trump back to the fore and I, I think that's created an element we just haven't seen in midterm elections before, where typically the former president, you know, when the midterm comes around two years later, is not front and center in people's minds. Um, I, I do think there's the possibility right now that, that, that Trump is front and center in a lot of voters' minds. And he's just whatever you think of him, he is an extremely polarizing figure. And, and that can help Democrats just, again, from the standpoint of people who may not like Biden may not be too wild about what the Democrats have been doing for the last two years, but may also strongly dislike Trump. It's another thing that I think could motivate them to, to kind of get engaged, you know, and, 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 and support Democrats. So, yeah, it's a I've told people that to me, the, the range of possible outcomes for November, what I would have told you, as you say, six months ago, what I would have told you was it goes from a good night to a great night for Republicans. And now I think it's anywhere from like a, a you know, a good night for Democrats, meaning they keep the Senate and, maybe on a really good night have a chance of hanging on to the House to a, you know, a good night for Republicans where they get the Senate and they get the House with a, with a decent margin. But I think it's now somewhere in there. So, yeah, I saw this headline on Politico the other day where it said, like, is it the Republicans that are actually facing the enthusiasm gap? And I think it's probably for a couple of the reasons that you mentioned, whether the Dobbs decision or President Trump being back in the news. So, 538, which is one of my favorite websites, currently has the Democrats keeping control of or extending their advantage in the Senate in like two thirds of their simulations. Does that feel about right to you? Are you seeing or sensing those that same kind of data? It, I, I you know, it, it it may seem my gut, and I'm you know, I'm not going on the I, I don't have my own model to, to counter with, so I'm giving you the I'm giving you the gut feel. The gut feeling is that's a little on the high side. Um, but it really hinges on, to me, a couple of, you know, does Ron Johnson survive in Wisconsin? Um, you know, because if he doesn't, I, I think the Democrats are obviously their best position to flip Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is, you know, Pat Toomey, Republican. He's not running for re-election. So this is Fetterman. This is Oz. There's all sorts of indications that Oz is having trouble, you know, kind of connecting with voters there. You know, Fetterman's had his own health issues, but the, the the polling has been pretty encouraging for Democrats and for Fetterman there. So if Democrats get that one and they could pick up uh, the Wisconsin seat, Ron Johnson's Republican-held seat in Wisconsin, um, 
then 67% sounds at least right to me and, and probably more. But if, if Democrats go one for two in those, then I do think I, I start to look at it and say, so rank, rank where the Republicans could, could counter. If Democrats go one for two in, the, in what I just mentioned, Republicans need to pick up a total of two somewhere else. And I, I would say, I think I'd put Georgia at the top of the list still, Herschel Walker and, and Raphael Warnock. And I think some of them, you know, again, Walker's had his issues as a candidate, but some of the more recent polling, I think, has been more encouraging to him. And I think the number two spot for Republicans, and it's 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 kind of not gotten maybe the full attention it deserves, is Nevada. Um, and for a variety of reasons, I think I think Republicans have a, have a very have a have a have a very decent shot at, at Nevada. Um, when you get past that, if they can't win those two. You know, I think to me, there's a bit of a line and, and then you start looking at the other states and I think it's 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 the Republicans aren't as well positioned. But I could see a scenario where Johnson hangs on in Wisconsin and then Walker and Laxalt, the Republican in Nevada, win and nothing. Everything else kind of, you know, form holds. That'd be enough for Republicans. And I, I that's not in my mind, that's not that far fetched. OK, uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to dig into some of those. So as people listening probably know, the current Senate is a 50-50 split. To me, it looks like maybe 10, maybe 11 races, Senate races that are somewhat competitive. You already mentioned a few of them. So assuming the Republicans do lose Pennsylvania in that Fetterman-Oz race, the other four that I can see Republicans defending that are toss-ups is Wisconsin, which you just talked about, and then Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida. Do you see any of the Republicans, you talked about Wisconsin a little bit, but for Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida, how vulnerable do you see the Republicans in those states? Yes, I mean that's the that's the other wild card. And I, I so if I guess I had to rank them in terms of, um, in my mind, most vulnerable for Republicans to least, I think of those three, Florida strikes me as the least vulnerable. Uh, Marco Rubio running for re-election there, you know. The main reason is Florida is just this state that, you know, it's it's always going to be on paper close. The Democrats, I think, are always going to get to that, you know, 47 percent level or so in in, in Florida. But it, it, it keeps breaking to the Republicans, 2014, 2016, 2018, 2020, just the nature of a midterm year, which tends to break against the White House party. Um, that coupled with, I think, DeSantis in the governor's race. Um, I, again, I don't expect him to win in a landslide, but I, I think he's the favorite clearly against Charlie Crist, the Democrat. So I, I suspect Florida, I'm not expecting it to be by a, a major margin, but I suspect Florida is the most stable for Republicans. Um, then I would say Ohio. And Ohio's the one I, I'm, 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 it's a little tricky to read because the polling continues. It's true. When you look at the polling, this is J.D. Vance, the Republican, and Tim Ryan, the Democrat. The polling still has Ryan very much in the game there. And I admit that it's had me wondering, um, but Ohio, you know, sort of like Florida, but I think more dramatically is a state that also keeps breaking Republican. And I think especially in the, you know, since the rise of Donald Trump, the swing has been more dramatic in Ohio than it's been in Florida. And we, we talked about them both 10, 20 years ago as kind of the two premier swing states. We now talk about them as a little bit more Republican friendly. And of the two, I think Ohio is more Republican friendly than Florida is, but the polling there has been, has been very competitive. And it's made me wonder if there's some weaknesses with Vance, some strengths with Ryan. So I have a little more doubt in Ohio, I think, than I do in Florida. And then I think the one that I have the most doubt, to be honest, is, is North Carolina. Um, and again, um, it, it, the polling there, I think I just, I can't remember who took it. I 
feel like I just saw one in the last 24, 48 hours that again had it had it very close. Um, you know, the polling there just has been the closest. Um, and you know, again, could I could I see a scenario where where there's a, a democratic surprise there? Probably not. Um, I, I'd probably bet against it in all three states, but I guess Carolina's the one where I have the most doubt. Mm-hmm. You said two things that I'm interested to dive a little deeper into. So one, obviously, the the Ohio race, JD Vance being you know kind of the the presumptive Trump-backed candidate. Uh, curious to think, and sort of what you were saying around how Ohio is lean, particularly since Donald Trump is is more in that direction. So it sounds like you're saying that that's probably going to help him. Um, so I, I won't put words in your mouth. I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer that. But then, and then the other sort of thread that I've been picking up on is you keep saying the polling is saying, um, and I, and, and that strikes me as there's a, a healthy dose of skepticism on that. Yeah. I want, I want to just talk to you about sort of how you feel about polling and like, where is it coming short? And yeah, why have in so many of the recent elections, we kind of gone in thinking one thing or thinking we knew one thing and seeing such a, you know, an about face in the, in the actual results. Yeah, and that's actually that actually connects with I think one of the reasons why I I still suspect Vance will be okay in Ohio because the polling has been wrong in Ohio and states like Ohio it's been more wrong in, in states like Ohio which is to say they they tend to be sort of more of these Midwest upper Midwest Rust Belt whatever you want to define it as states um, that have large populations of white voters without college degrees. Um, demographically, that has been Trump's bread and butter as a group. Um, it's a group that you, know, you could go back, say, a generation in our politics, and it was a core Democratic group. You know, they were blue-collar Democrats. And, and, and a lot, they've migrated for all sorts of reasons to fascinating thing toward the, toward the Republican Party, and it really accelerated under Trump. And there's all sorts of theories why, um, but, but I think there's a compelling case to be made, especially since the rise of Trump, that this type of voter, particularly a Trump-friendly, non-college-educated white voter in a state like Ohio, is being missed in the polling and and being missed because they're refusing to participate. Um, Participation levels in polls are just way, way down compared to where they were, let's say, 20 years ago. Um, It's a real issue. And I think there's a real possibility that there's, you know, They've, the pollsters have made all sorts of efforts since 2016, when, when obviously they were most famously wrong with Trump, um, have made all sorts of efforts to compensate for what I'm describing here, Trump's demographic strength with non-college white voters. They've made all sorts of efforts to do it. I don't think they figured it out yet. And again, another one of the theories that's out there is that, you know, um, they are succeeding in connecting with more non-college educated white voters, but they're they're getting... There's, there's a there's not every non-college educated white voter is a Trump fan, and the efforts the pollsters are making are connecting them with an unrepresentative sample of non-college educated white voters, like the Trump hostile component, the minority of this group of voters, and so that may be throwing the polls too. So it's all a long way of saying we saw it in 16, we saw it in 18 to some degree, we definitely saw it in 20. If you can remember Wisconsin in 2020, there was an ABC poll. Uh, Weeks before the election that had Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin, he ends up winning it by a fraction of a point. Um, So those are the states, states with those large, older, 
non-college white populations where they've had the biggest issues with polling. It hasn't been nearly as bad in a state like Georgia, hasn't been nearly as bad in a state like Arizona, but especially when you look at it in Ohio, um, the results versus the polls, there's been a, a, an imbalance there. The polls have, have been more friendly to Democrats. So it's one of those reasons I look at the Ryan um, Vance polling and I, I'm curious and I'm wondering, and I, I, I guess I, I wouldn't be shocked if on election night we're looking up and holy cow, Tim Ryan might pull this thing off. But I also wouldn't be shocked at all if we look up on election night and it's like, yeah, this is this is Trump Biden all over again. We spent two months wondering if Ohio was competitive and it ends up being a pretty solid Republican win. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up, Ricky. It's a great question. And I think it, polling just affects so much because in some ways it's great for those candidates for um, for someone like a Tim Ryan or who's North Carolina is Sherry. What's her last name? Boost, boost the Democrat from North Carolina who's running against. Oh, Beasley. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's great for them because they can start pulling in. They can go to donors and be like, look, these are competitive races. You should be pumping money into this race. I have a real chance of winning. On the other hand, that potentially might be misplaced dollars where donors are investing in Ohio and North Carolina, like they have, where they have no shot of actually winning. It's like when people ran against Mitch McConnell or Tim Scott, right. it's like we're throwing millions, tens of millions of dollars into those races that are, would have been better spent in other races. So I actually want to talk about, we talked about the places where Republicans are defending those five states, the Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, Ohio, Florida. But there are five, in my opinion, states that the Democrats are defending. Uh, defending. And you pointed to two of them were Georgia and Nevada. Democrats are maybe particularly vulnerable. But what do you think of Arizona and New Hampshire as states where Democrats could be vulnerable? Yeah. I, so I th- New Hampshire to me um, it, it is just to, seems like the, 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 where the Republicans are, are poised to miss the biggest opportunity. Um, I, I, I feel New Hampshire, look, it was presidentially, it was extremely close in 2016, not as much in 2020, but demographically it, it contains plenty of, you know, the kind of voter I'm describing here that the Republican slash Trump friendly uh, type of voter. Um, look, Republicans wanted Chris Sununu to be their candidate Sununu didn't want to run. I suspect if Chris Sununu had run, um, he'd certainly be very competitive. I think might very well be the favorite. Um, I, I, there's all sorts of reasons why he might not have had any interest in running um, for the seat, but I think missing on getting Chris Sununu in the race and ending up with Bullduck, who's, um, I, 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 you know, I, I see he's done this about face on, um, the 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 the, the, the um, integrity of the 2020 election um, after winning the Republican primary, he obviously senses that 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 position was useful in the Republican primary and is potentially costly in the general election. So he's trying to execute a pivot there um, to the sorts of voters who will decide an election in New Hampshire. Uh, I, I'm not sure how convincing that'll be. If that's going to be a concern for voters, I think he's. He's, you know, he's trying to get away from it, but there's a, he's left quite a paper trail there. Um, and and that, that may prove to be a weakness. And in Arizona, it's, it's just, um, uh, it's fascinating to me, the, the issue of polling accuracy aside, in Arizona, what's interesting is um, the, there's, a, there's a disparity between the polling in the governor's race and the polling in the Senate race. Uh, the Republican in the governor's race um, Carrie Lake, who's Trump-aligned, 
echoes Trump's claims about 2020. Trump endorsed is leading in some of the polling or certainly even. Um, and the Republican in the Senate race, Blake Masters, who is also Trump aligned, also Trump endorsed, um, is, is trailing in, in some cases significantly uh, against Mark Kelly, the Democrat. So um, it, it, it's look, Kelly's an incumbent that may indicate strengths on Kelly's part as an incumbent. But I think it may also indicate some weaknesses on, on, on Masters part uh, as a candidate. And I know there's some disagreements Republicans nationally, Mitch McConnell, a Senate Republican leader, certainly he felt Masters was a weak candidate. He did not want Masters to be the nominee out there, um, but Masters has it anyway. And I think there's a disconnect in terms of interest from national Republicans in that race versus some others. That may be a factor um, as well. But th- that's where that's where you know it's it, 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 our politics are so nationalized in this day and age. Those are both really good tests of how much candidate you know quality still matter too. Right. And luckily, Masters has Peter Thiel. He doesn't need the McConnells of the world. But I think to your, to your point, Mark Kelly and Maggie Hassan, most, I would say, probably a lot of the country would see as like pretty solid candidates, particularly for incumbents. So it, it is interesting to see how much like the national stuff butts up against what are pretty solid records in Congress. And then two other states I wanted to touch on briefly where Republicans hoped to extend the map were Colorado and Washington. Do you see them having any prayers in either of those states? I've been intrigued by both um, because I think in each case, Republicans nominated candidates who, if they could get to a, if the race is competitive, would kind of be uh, potentially compelling to the kinds of swing voters who decide elections in those states, if they can get close enough. Um, O'Day in Colorado, um, I, I, look, Colorado has become a much more democratic state, a much more culturally liberal state uh, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, it's always had, I think, a tinge of cultural liberalism, but but it's just become a much more blue state. Um, and O'Day is very moderate on, on the, you know, on those cultural issues. Um, and and we, we talking about like Bolduc in New Hampshire having to sort of try to reorient himself for the general election. O'Day doesn't have to do any of that in Colorado. That said, the polling that I've seen has not been uh, encouraging for him. And it's, it's one that as soon as he won the primary, I kind of circled as like, this is a dark horse possibility. Um, to me, it's the kind of race that look in a, um, and it, it could still materialize this where we're, we're a month or so out, but like in a real Republican wave where all these other races we've talked about so far are all breaking kind of Republican and Republicans are winning the house by a big margin. When you get years like that, and we've had them, Democrats had one in 2018, Republicans had one in 2010, Republicans really had one in 2014 as well. You know, in years like that, when it's a it's a clear wave, um, you always end up with some surprises on election night that end up real close. And I put I put Colorado and Washington both in that category, where I just I, I think a national Republican wave that seemed very possible six months ago um, would, would sort of have to rematerialize in the final month of this campaign. But if it did, then I think you know the, the wave pushes everything five or six points in one party's direction. And if you push both of those states five or six points in the Republican direction, suddenly I think you'd be looking at competitive races. And I think those candidates could be, you know, I think they nominated in in a scenario like that, they nominated good candidates. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting to think about the wave because, or a wave in either direction, because often it's not, you know, specific issue driven, it's more relative discontent with whatever, you know, the direction of the country, and we're all going to kind of go in the other way, right? Um, 
Uh, one thing that I've been noticing just living up here in New England is where you're know, getting hammered with the New Hampshire ads and all of the ones for that are ostensibly pro Maggie Hassan are trying to paint Bullduck as, you know, an, another Republican that's very um, anti anti choice and like this is the issue that we're going to hammer on. And then in the other direction, Maggie Hassan votes with Joe Biden causes inflation. And, and that's what you're going to get. Right. Like it, two very almost, you know, polar opposite playing fields. I'm curious. You know, we talked a little bit about some of the issues that are galvanizing Democratic voters. What what are some of the issues that are specific to states that are are, you know, playing out across the country that you're tracking or things that are kind of getting traction from the candidates in terms of what they're looking at and like, you know, what they're trying to push on in, in order to get their voters out there. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, obviously, yeah, you, you, with, with Democrats, it's, it's abortion and Trump, obviously. With Republicans, it's, it's you know, inflation slash the economy, general dissatisfaction with Biden. I mean, that's, that's the other element of this that like, when, I, when I try to figure out where things stand, this is why I, I find myself five weeks out in a position I can't remember being in for a midterm election, because if you usually the, the president's approval rating, tell me the president's approval rating in a midterm election year, and I'll tell you how the midterm election is going to turn out. And Biden's approval rating is right where it is when there's a wave for the other party. You know, he's about 42 percent uh, on average right now. That's basically where Trump was in 18. It's basically where Obama was in 10. It's, you know. Bush was even lower in, in 06. It's where Clinton was in 94, the Republican revolution year. So, you know, you look at Biden's approval rating and it's 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 exactly where the opposition party wants the president to be heading into a midterm election. But it also usually tracks with the generic ballot, you know, number, which is, you know, in the polling where you, you ask, would you rather Republicans or Democrats control Congress or do you want to vote for a Democrat or Republican for Congress? Yes, some, something like that. The average on the generic ballot right now is essentially tied. I think I checked it this morning on Real Clear Politics, and I saw the Democrats were ahead by three-tenths of 1% on the, the average of all the generic ballot polls. All those years I just mentioned, those midterm wave years where the president had low approval rating, it, you could also see it in the generic ballot. You know, At this point in 2018, Democrats were, were way up in the generic ballot. At this point in 2010, you know, not only was Obama way down in approval rating, but Republicans were way up in the generic ballot. They were up in the generic ballot in 2014 as well. This year, you got those those two sort of clashing things. So it's it's it's, it's um, Republicans want to ride an anti Biden message and just basically go with the you know vote against the incumbent, vote against Biden, vote against all these Democratic policies. But that generic ballot's making me wonder how 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 effective that is um, right now, or if there's something that's 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 kind of um, taking precedence over it. That we also it's interesting in our polling. The Republicans have a huge issue too on uh, the uh, on the border. When you ask about the border and when you ask about crime, Republicans have big advantages uh, in our polling on those two issues as well. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I do wonder um, if that's something you'll hear more of from Republican candidates in the closing stretch. But I, I, I do. I guess what 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 ultimately strikes me is I, I think what would what would make them if you talk to Democrats and say what would what's the best dynamic for you heading into this election? They'll, they'll probably tell you they would settle for, if you could give them the same climate that existed on election day in 2020, the same level of the, the same lines of polarization that existed then, they'd probably settle for that. And remember in 2020, I mean, look, they walked away with the presidency in both chambers. They lost a bunch of house seats in 2020. Um, 
almost lost the house when you when you when you look at it. But um, you sort of you know, did, didn't get a lot of attention in the moment because of the presidential race. But to the extent that that they can recreate that polarization, which means elevating Donald Trump back to the fore, which means trying to get people to vote against Trump as much as they're voting for Democrats, they, they would certainly settle for that. And I, I, I just my my sense is that's something that at least for these summer months, they they succeeded to some measure in doing. Sure. So now that you've brought up the House, let's move on to it. Going back to 538, uh, their simulations say there's a 7 in 10 chance that Republicans take back the House. And as we mentioned, it seemed a few months back that the Republicans were going to overwhelm in the House and have a huge majority. It doesn't seem like that anymore. For most polls, it seems that it's going to be actually pretty tight majority that maybe Republicans might end up with 223 to the Democrats 212 or something like that. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean, I think if you go back in time a year, a little bit less, uh, to the you know, November of last year, you had governor's races in uh, uh, New Jersey and Virginia, and both had 13-point uh, swings from the 2020 election to the 2021 election toward the Republicans, right? Virginia had gone for Biden by 10, then Glenn Young and the Republican wins the state by three, 13-point swing. And New Jersey had gone for Biden by 16. Phil Murphy, the Democratic governor, gets reelected, but only by three points. 13 points swing toward the toward the uh, Republicans. And I think and you, and you certainly saw in New Jersey in that election, one of the big factors was the Republican areas of that state were just on fire in terms of turnout. Democratic areas were just were just asleep. Um, so you, you definitely look you looked at that. And I remember looking at that and, and trying to extrapolate that to House races all across the country in 2022. And I mean, you can look at Virginia. There's there's two. House districts in Virginia that are the second district and the seventh district for folks who really follow these closely. But they've got Democratic incumbents in them who were both elected in the 2018 Democratic wave. And those districts both voted for Glenn Youngkin, you know, pretty solidly in, in the governor's race last year. So I started looking at those results and saying, you know, look, there's there's districts like the second and seventh of Virginia all over the country. And I mean, this could be you know, this could be 35, 40 seats for the Republicans based on on the climate that seemed to exist in, in, in November of 2021. But we've had a number of special House elections this summer, and they've just not followed that path. They've all they've all been the ones that I'm thinking of, at least, um, have all come after the Supreme Court decision. They've all come as Trump has kind of reemerged. And Democrats have, have actually, uh, you know, shown a you don't see 13 point swings. Um, anything like that in, in these houses races we've seen this summer. The most recent one was a, you know, was in New York State. It was a, a special election for an open seat, Democratic held, very close district, but the Democrats held it, and and that was a big upset that they did because again, you if, if you were still seeing that Virginia New Jersey style swing, that would have been a ten point Republican win, uh, and instead the Democrats held on to it. So, um, it, yeah, it, 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 you still look at the reality of it. Um, the math shows. To hold on to the House, especially with these the, 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 the redrawn lines, Democrats have to have just about every break possible go their way. And under that circumstance, they could walk out of election night. You know, you need 218 for a majority. I mean, not election night, but they could walk out of the election you know, with 221, something like that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's like their the, the ultimate for Democrats is they just hang on to this thing by a whisker. Whereas for Republicans, it's, yeah, they get it by a margin of 10 seats, 
20 seats, you know, something like that is, is, is more realistic. And that's the other, the other thing for junkies who really follow this, why I say it could be, you know, election week, election month. If it, if you ever get in a situation for the Democrat to actually have a chance to hold it and let's say like, hold it, I'm talking like by three seats here. If you think about it, where are they going to get those final seats that put them over the top? The Democrats are going to rely on um, a couple of districts in California and Washington state. Um, if, if it ever comes to it, that they're trying to get it by that slim of a margin, California and Washington state take a month to count their votes. So that's where, that's where we could be waiting on. Oh, I don't know that anyone wants that. Uh, so I know. <laughs> maybe you, I mean, probably be good for ratings. I guess. No, I don't uh, want, I don't want a month. I don't want a yeah, month. <laughs> yeah. Be, be not good for your, like your sleep and your relationships probably. Um, so we are, as we're recording this, we are six weeks exactly out from election day. What are some of the things that we should be keeping an eye out that could potentially change change it either to make to go back to that Republican big wave or to a place where Democrats are actually able to keep what they currently have? Yeah, I mean, what I'm looking at every day is 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 the poll average and, you know, pick your pick your favorite poll average out there, 538 or you know, real clear politics, whatever they are. They all have their own you know quirky standards or whatever, but I, you get the idea. And I, I want to see if the if the I'm watching the generic ballot. Because um, I'm assuming Biden's approval rating, it's 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 actually gone up a bit, you know, over the summer. But I, like I said, it's still in that zone that like no president wants to be in heading into a midterm election. But the generic ballot is the one I want to see if it if it if it moves. Um, one thing technically that that is on my mind is we're we're right now in this transition period where the pollsters basically before Labor Day, when you looked at any poll. Uh, it was all registered voters. They would just they would call and include anybody who was a registered vo- voter in the poll. And now after Labor Day, they switch to their models, which which means they're trying to determine who the likely voters are. So just being registered to vote is no longer enough to be included in the poll. Now they're trying to figure out the likelihood that somebody's actually going to vote. And you, you'll see that the likely voter model sometimes will shift the generic ballot. They will shift the you know head to head numbers in a race. Um, so we're starting to get those in. Um, one of them this Sunday, I noticed from uh, ABC News, The Washington Post, their poll, um, there was a pretty significant difference between what they found among registered voters and likely voters in terms of the generic ballot. And the Republicans were doing much better with the likely voters. So in my mind, I'm still at like, let's give this another week or two. Let all of these kind of likely voter polls come into these poll averages and see if that shakes it up at all and, and, and see if there's a little bit more clarity that comes out of that. Um, if it does, then, you know, if it, and if it moves it towards the Republicans, let's say by two or three points, you know, then I think that right there, you start saying, okay, now that's much, that's more in line with not a huge wave, but, you know, a, a solid night for Republicans. Um, if it doesn't, you know, if we, if we've fully got likely voter models into the mix and we're still looking at, you know, basically a deadlocked generic ballot, even in the face of a, of a pretty low approval rating for Biden. Um, yeah, then I'm open to the, the the possibility, you know, we're talking about here of like, hey, this this is a district by district battle where, where Democrats, you know, are underdogs, but it's not impossible that they, you know, that they actually find a way to, to, to hold on to the House. So technically speaking, I'm looking for that. The other thing I'm kind of looking at more broadly speaking is just kind of you know, what's the mix? What's the balance, let's say, mid-late October in terms of what people are absorbing from the from the news and from the world around them? What's the mix between bad economic news and Trump? 
Uh, <laughs> and, and because I, I really do think that the more um, when you've got discouraging news about inflation or employment or any of that, it just that that is automatically going to be bad for the Democrats. And to the extent that's center stage, that puts Republicans in the position they want to be in politically. Um, to the extent that you know Trump is at war with a, a prosecutor or there's another whatever it happens to be something that's put him back in the news. I just think again, I, I think that's a win for for Democrats just from the standpoint of it opens up. If you assume that the the, the sort of diehard Trump supporter out there is desperate to get out and vote because can't stand Biden and wants a, you know, revenge for 2020 and all of that. If you bake that in, the flip side of it is I do think there's a voter out there who's not crazy about Biden and the Democrats, but who does not like Donald Trump. And the more Trump is in the news, I think the more chance Democrats have of getting that voter off the sidelines and into the mix on their side. So that's why I think Trump's prominence in this situation is a net plus for Democrats. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, it's it's been really fun kind of getting into like the nitty gritty of almost individual voter mindsets. I, I wondered, uh, you know, one thing or one thing I really wanted to ask you about when I when I found out you're going to join us. Um, so I feel like in the especially during the presidential elections and the in the telestrator sessions, um, you're kind of really pointing out sort of the, that rural urban divide when we're getting into sort of states. So obviously we've traditionally just talked about red states and blue states, but come 2016, even highlighted again in 2020 and probably, you know, almost for all time, there's been this real divide in terms of political leanings of the rural voters and urban voters. So this is going to be a little bit of an out there question, but like for somebody who understands the mechanics of how these elections work sort of better than anybody else, do you have an overarching feeling about whether or not they kind of get things right more often than not um sort of what's your impression of um yeah sort of the end result of the election kind of serving serving the purpose of of our democracy obviously it's not just a straight you know everybody votes and we kind of pick one thing or the other you know we we have a very intricate system and i'm curious like how 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 do you feel about it i always say that like i i feel like elections midterm elections presidential elections um are like the family photo of America. So your 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 presidential election, you're taking one every four years, and you're getting um, a, a glimpse of the family at that moment. And then you take another four years later, and you can look at the picture, and you can compare the two, and you can see how it's changed, who's come in, who's left, what's you know, who's changed their appearance, and and, and you can get a whole series of them across time, and you can start to just from the pictures, you can start to tell a story, and I. I kind of feel that's what, what elections are like, especially, you know, with, with a national election where you've got red, blue maps for states, or then you could break it down a level further and you've got red, blue maps for counties, you know, congressional districts, that sort of thing. I think you could start to tell a story. And I mean, there are fascinating stories there looking at presidential elections. Um, some of the, the most sort of core staunchly democratic or what, you know, if you're painting the maps now, blue areas of the country say, a generation ago, maybe maybe the 80s into the 90s with Bill Clinton um, would have been in Appalachia, um, you know, would have been in Kentucky and in West Virginia. I mean, Michael Dukakis, we'll get a mass reference in here. Michael Dukakis, you know, one of the most lost in a landslide 
nationally. Very liberal candidate, but but he won West Virginia, you know, and and, and this is nineteen eighty eight, uh, and you go you fast forward to twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, and Donald Trump is winning West Virginia by forty points. That's how much the the, the politics culturally. You know, I, I don't think West Virginia's changed that much. It's not like there's been this huge influx of. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of. It's still a lot of native-born Appalachian West Virginians, you know, and 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 they, but they're they have realigned themselves politically, just dramatically. Um, Vermont, look at the flip side of it. Um, Vermont in 1988 voted for George Bush Senior. Um, I think Bush Senior won nationally by about eight points in '88. I think his Vermont margin might have been six. It was just it was only slightly Vermont, slightly to the right, that's uh, the left of the of the country as a whole. And now Vermont's one of the most liberal, you know, democratic blue states, deepest blue states in, in the country. Um, so again, you just when you when you look at these maps across time, you see those shifts, you see those changes, um, and there's always stories behind them, and it's fun to kind of learn learn the stories behind them and to try to figure out, you know, what is it? I mean, this 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 divide, yeah, urban rural, or, or like I said, it's it's, it's there's a among white voters, there's certainly this 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 divide, college non college. What goes into that? What drives that? The new and emerging one that I'm really interested in seeing how it plays out this year is among Hispanic voters. Um, significant shift away from the Democrats toward Republicans in 2020 that defied a lot of people's assumptions. Um, and I really want to see what that looks like in 2022. That could be decisive in, in Nevada in that Senate race. There's also there's a couple of congressional districts right along the border in, in deep South Texas that are just what I was describing. I mean, that were like voted for Hillary Clinton by counties that voted for Hillary Clinton by 50, 60 points in 2016 that were competitive by 2020. I mean, that big of a change in just four years time. What do they look like in 2022? What's the reason for that? What's going on there? So I, I love looking at these these maps and these these sort of data sets, seeing how they change and and then trying to understand why. I love like your passion, right? You know, you're just like smiling, <laughs> listening to you. It's like, this is why people like watching you. So we, uh, we appreciate your time here, Steve, if six weeks out, so we're not going to hold you to this, but if <laughs> tonight we asked you to make a prediction, what do you got on election night? Um, well, that it, <laughs> safest prediction is that I, I don't think it'll be settled election night, certainly not the Senate, because if you look at the states that are going to decide it, it's at Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, the first, go back to 2020, the first one of those states to be called, at least by my network, wasn't until the Saturday after the election, and that was Pennsylvania. Um, so if you have at all close races in, in those states, they have not changed substantially the way they count the votes. It's going to be a long, slow, days-long count uh, in those states. Um, the other possibility there, too, by the way, is it, it, <laughs> you could get into a situation where Republicans have 50 seats, Democrats have 49 and Georgia goes to a runoff just like it did in 2020 because there's a libertarian who's going to get 3% of the vote and it could be 49-48, you know, and then they go to a runoff. The runoff would be December 6th this year. You could have the exact same thing you had in 2020, which is a Georgia runoff that decides control of the Senate. So I, it's, that's not impossible either. So my 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 like uh, 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 chicken way of, of, of getting out of a prediction is to predict we won't know that night. But I, look, right now, I would say that the, the, the Republicans are definitely favored to take the House. I would be surprised if the Democrats held on. I would also be surprised if the Republicans retook it by a really massive margin. 
Um, yeah, I, I just, in my mind, the range is somewhere from like a, a Democratic majority of five seats to a Republican majority, you know, of uh, 25, 30, some, 25, let's say, somewhere in there. I think that's where it is in my mind as a range. And the Senate side, um, yeah, you asked me earlier about the 67% um, from, from 538. In my gut, it's closer to 50-50. Um, and honestly, it's just one of those, on, on any given day, I feel a little bit little bit differently. Um, I, I think I've been, in my mind, I've been a little bit more toward the Republican side because I've been, I, I've been looking at Nevada more and more and thinking there's a, there's a, a the Republicans may be better position there than I had been kind of factoring in. All right. So we, we, we got a prediction. We appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> I don't envy people in Georgia at all over these last few years. It's just, it just feels like nonstop election stuff for them. That must be exhausting. It's, you know, one problem Massachusetts never has, right? Because... Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, See, I don't like, I don't love that either, but it would be, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's always grass is always greener type situation. But um, again, thank you so much, Steve. If, uh, if you want to check them out, you can check them out on NBC or the NBC networks uh, for these next six weeks. And as he said, probably longer than the next six weeks on the election coverage and go check out his book that he published back in in 2018 as well. Um, So plenty of ways you can consume um, Steve Kornacki content, but thank you so much for your time. We, We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, this was a blast guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We were just saying that that's what a what a treat that was. It was I, I I said it to him, but I I am fired up. I love when our guests. It was the same one we had Dan Fishman on, and uh, I just love when our guests are so passionate about this stuff. And it's not just like this persona he puts on on television. Like he truly is like fired up to talk about these district by district races and like the real the the registered voters versus likely voters and or like the rural urban divide you were asking about. And so yeah, I'm I'm happy and. Uh, fired up just having talked to him yeah he definitely like lives and breathes this stuff and I think you can you can sort of tell when there's you know a journalist who's talking about something that like keeps them up at night and they're like trying to research these different you know esoteric connections and like he can he can really do that um and yeah it was definitely a treat for us to get to to experience that in person and get to interject and add some questions in here and there for sure. And these next week, six weeks will obviously be fascinating. I think this is the time of year where, like, as he said, if you're like a real junkie, you've been following the stuff for probably close to a year of, of making these predictions. But for the average voter who have like real things going on in their lives, these are the six weeks where you start to pay attention to these things. You're starting to see the ads on television. You're starting to maybe do some research online. And so while the polls have told us a lot and give us a pretty good idea of like the range of outcomes right now, there's still so much that can change over these next six weeks. And certainly it'll be fascinating because as you and I know, like things change so quickly, like you don't know what's going to happen. As Steve said, there could be another Trump thing that rears its head. We could, the economy is is starting to like the, the stock market has been down in the last week. If inflation continues to rise, if the unemployment rate starts to rise, all of a sudden we could start to have that more of the, the smaller red wave, at least that happens. But on the other hand, if you know, gas prices continue to fall, if 
food prices maybe start to go down a little bit if if we do have these Republican candidates not being able to pivot more to the center. You could have what seemed unfathomable a few months ago that Democrats have a pretty solid night. So there's still a ton to watch for over the next few months. Yeah, I think one thing that was interesting for me was that in these sort of red wave or blue wave situations, it's almost a little bit less about the candidates themselves and more about general perception. And that in this instance, it's both about the candidates themselves, but also about a general discontentment with a either the way that the country is headed or Biden specifically, um, which is I think that's a, like a like a fascinating dynamic to play out in that people are being forced to look a little bit more closely as to like who who they might be voting for, whether, yeah, you know, based on specific issues as well as like, OK, but do I want to you know, do I want a Congress that's dominated by Republicans or Democrats, or do I want, you know, a Senate that's going to be making some laws for me now um, in a way that maybe those direct connections hadn't really been made before? Sure. And one, I think it's increased not only to like the polarization, the na- the national, where all races seem to be national now, which seems to be more of a thing in recent years that Steve was saying, but also that it's, it is really close. I mean, so like New Hampshire isn't just electing this one person. They're electing someone that like really could swing the balance of power in the country and affect the laws for a lot of people in this country. And so it's it doesn't feel like exaggeration to say that like this race could determine control of the Senate, because as we mentioned, a lot of them really could. And there are 10 different states out there that might be energizing their voters along that message. And the cynical side of me is like, I, I don't love where Steve was kind of getting at it, like the voter that says, I don't love Biden and the the direction that the Democrats are really taking the country right now. But if the alternative is a bunch of like Trumpists in power, I like that less. You know, I, I, I this is the, the naive optimist in me. You wish that people were voting because they were excited about where the Democrats have taken us over the last two years. Or on the alternative, you think that the Republicans have a far better vision for the country that you want to, to see. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. And I mean, I think, you know, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying during the Dobbs uh, decision that like, I think you would have seen, or yeah, there is more of like a, a fear of the, of the other side getting their way than there is of like a hope that my side will get their way because right. in so many ways, we don't even really know like what the, kind of what the priorities and what the positions will be like the races are very much being run in the negative like what will happen if the other side yeah yeah which I, I hate but I, I I think it will be and you you are getting at this question where it's just going to be a battle of narratives now because as we've started to see and we talked about this last week with the DeSantis stunt what what do the Republicans want to get in the news they want immigration they want crime they they want the, the economy. They want all of those things in the news. And, and what do Democrats want in the news? They want abortion. They want voting rights. They want climate change in the news. And it's who's going to win the battle of narratives, right? If, if ultimately, when you're going into the poll, the thing you care most about is the economy, that's going to be good for the Republicans. They've won that battle. On the other hand, if you're most concerned about abortion rights or voting rights or climate change, that's going to be much more like that's great for the Democrats. And so I think both parties do have messages to deliver. It's really which ones are able to do it more effectively. Yeah. You know, one thing I was surprised that we that didn't really come up um, is Russia, Ukraine, 
um so like foreign policy which we always talk about is like one no of like, one cares <laughs> like, no one cares about but is actually the one area that right. really congress the senate and the pre and the office of the presidency have like the most direct control over that really like we turn that over to to them and then we don't do anything about it after all after that like we have no say in the matter and you know for many of these hot button issues you talk about the supply chain problems and inflation like a lot of contributing factors have to do with the ongoing conflict between you know in ukraine um talking talking about climate change even like if progressives are serious about that we have to be able to engage with russia and china which we're doing less and less of right like so there are a, like the political parties are doing a very good job of focusing the issues but in terms of like talking about like in, in terms of saying one one side cares, the other side doesn't. But in terms of like talking about solutions and how we would actually fix it, the fact that Russia, Ukraine doesn't come up at all is kind of ridiculous, but very emblematic and like, you know, not surprising in terms of the way that we have to the, the way that we operate our elections. Yeah, not ideal, but ultimately this is like the classic this is the trade-off like you, you need to get in power to to make the decisions and so it's, it's right now these next six weeks are all about getting into power right we'll, we'll figure right. things i mean which you know two of those things that that he alluded to as well like you know with the with bulldog trying to you know first framing himself as like pro-trump like questioning the legitimacy of the election now he's in the general and now he's got to like unquestion the legitimacy of the election to kind of get those centrist ish whatever conservatives or more moderate conservatives and similarly you know we've talked about this the issue of democrats like kind of pouring money into trump back trump back candidates to try and elevate trump to the fore exactly for the reasons that that uh steve was mentioning that like this is a um, more or less a winning issue or at least a distraction from some of the other things that are going on. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> very interesting how quickly it feels like people are willing to sort of sell their, sell their souls for um, a seat at the table. Sure. And it's like, it's one, yeah, like I said earlier, it's the, you know, the, wide-eyed optimist in me is like oh i wish that they wouldn't do that and I, if i was in that position i would never do that but that's why i'm sitting on the sidelines commenting on people that are actually doing the work and the, the reality of the situation but i guess six weeks out it'll be uh, our eyes will all be glued to it um, i'm sure you and i will talk much more about this over the next six weeks and uh, past then as steve was saying but uh, this will be our this will serve as our big midterm marker episode indeed and it, quite honestly, I don't know that it could have been a better one. So hopefully people enjoyed, Steve. I, we certainly did. That was a true pleasure. Indeed. All right, man. Till next time. Yes, we stay up all night on Garner Avenue. Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a Case of lion's hands 
folks of different minds Because even though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value sometimes being wrong So morning's you away The morning lets your regal bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find And change the lion's head And folks are different mind Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz